1: Joanna Reese is an investor, entrepreneur, advisor, educator, and mentor with deep expertise in helping companies and organizations define their market and build powerful brands. Currently, she is a managing partner at West, a venture studio that specializes in end-to-end process of designing, building, and launching purpose-driven brands, including Twitter, Square, Eventbrite, Impossible Foods, and more. Throughout her career, she has served on the board of more than 25 venture-backed companies, as well as the board of the National Venture Capital Association. If that wasn't enough, Joanna was named a Global Leader for Tomorrow by the World Economic Forum and a Henry Crown Fellow by the Aspen Institute, where she is a seminar moderator. Joanna was also a candidate for mayor of San Francisco in November 2011. On this episode, Joanna shares many of the life lessons she's learned on her incredible journey.
0: Anyone looking for a new job this year? Or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com and if you're a company hiring you get a free job posting today that's culturefinders.com oh yeah just so you guys know Culture Finders and what got you there is actually hiring right now so jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon welcome to what got you there how are you doing today
2: I'm doing really well. How are you?
0: I am doing really well. So excited for this conversation. And one of the jumping off points I would love to start around is just athletic competition. And I know you went to Duke University and you did gymnastics there. And I would love to know, because that was at an early age, how much of an impact and how lasting of an impact did gymnastics have for you?
2: Uh, Gymnastic is absolutely core to who I am today. Uh, I developed, I would say, extreme discipline. Gymnastics is, you know, some sports have seasons. Gymnastics is a year-round sport. Uh, So I, in college, had no choice. I was a science major, and I always had an 8 a.m. class because I had to be in the gym every day at 2 p.m. all year. And uh, the thing I always talk about in gymnastics is the incredible amount of focus I I have. When you're on a balance beam, and it's only a few inches wide, uh, and uh, if someone erupts in cheers you could get thrown off. So you learn how to get very, very centered And that's being able to stay very centered and very present in everything I do has benefited me throughout my professional career.
0: I'd love to touch on this extreme focus because this is one of the things I'm really intrigued by you because you're involved in so many different things in so many different industries and fields. And, And so how do you bring that focus from the balance beam to the focus that you need day to day? I'm assuming just even in terms of task switching from meeting to meeting, how do you maintain that focus in the business world?
2: It's just it's about uh, remind. I think I have practiced because everything that we do really well in life is a practice. I have practiced presence of being extremely present, and I'm fortunate to have great mentors in my life. The probably the person I learned presence from was Quincy Jones, the music producer. Um, When you're with Quincy, he's all on directly with you. The rest of the world could be erupting and burning down and he is there and i was always admired his ability to to switch into different modes and and to take on so much in his own life and it that was just I think I've always practiced presence and then having great mentors like that reminding me every step of the way.
0: I'd love diving further into mentors uh, in a few minutes, but I would love to know around presence. Say someone, they, they feel like they, they don't have that skill, they don't have that mindset yet. Is there anything you do when when just trying to get refocused that has just been helpful for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, these are really basic things, but sometimes it's just stopping and and literally stopping and breathing and saying, if I I know I have all of these things on my plate, but if I'm going to be able to effectively get them done, I have to just remember that I'm going to put my energy into the task at hand, whatever is in front of me—the meeting, the call—and and really allow you know um, train myself to just let everything else be uh, you know set aside, and then when I switch to the next thing, I'm never lingering back in the old one and. By the way, this is going to sound like a funny analogy, but this is why I'm a new golfer and I won our club championship. <laughs> um, Congratulations. And because golfers, if they have a bad hole, they carry it with them. And I have this ability to just let it go. And maybe it's a Duke thing with Coach K and the idea of next play, which was always don't stay back into what just happened. Focus on the next thing. And, and you just have to let go.
0: I absolutely love that. You mentioned about the basics, and, and a lot of times we try to overcomplicate things, but it really is just returning to the basics. They are so helpful at so many times. This has me really intrigued. I mean, th- this seems like something that, that you've really thought out throughout your life, your career. Are there any non-negotiables you have pretty much every single day? They, they don't have to be anything big. They, they could just be basics that, that you think, though, have been beneficial for you over the years?
2: non negotiables that is a fantastic question. I'm trying to think what I think one of my uh, i i take on i i guess i the non negotiables would just be if I feel like it's i can't make this is gonna, might even sound kind of silly, but everything I do is about purpose and impact, so if I'm asked to do something where I don't understand the ability for me to be purposeful in it or have an impact or whatever I'm getting engaged with or involved with isn't purposeful, impactful, it just makes it really easy to say no to a lot of things. And I use that just as my filtering system every day. It doesn't mean that sometimes, you know, uh, superfluous things like creep their way in, but in general, I really try to make sure that everything I'm doing kind of fits that filter.
0: I'd love to double click on that and distill that down a bit. I'm even just wondering how you came across that filter in, in terms of purpose and impact.
2: I think this is back to you asked me a question about gymnastics. It was I I didn't have a lot of free time, so I had to get really clear about where I spent my time, and it made me focus on the things that were most important. And I just think over the years, I got better and better and better about filtering uh, out, you know, I, I, you know, kind of uh, filtering out the noise or the peanut gallery around you, and just focusing on things that I believed would really make a difference.
0: Yeah, constant noise coming our way. If we can really hone in on that signal, that's going to be incredibly beneficial. Are there are there even more in depth things that you've done around just cutting out that noise? I'm even wondering if there's other things, right? Like we even think about it from if you're on Twitter, constant Twitter feeds, constant emails, how do you do this as opposed to just starting with those big principles in terms of purpose and impact? Are there other ways you filter?
2: I, um, I probably don't listen to a lot of things that people listen to. I have a very short set of things I read every morning and I literally have, you know, the way I kind of scan through, I, um, I, this is, I I just don't allow myself to get distracted. I I really don't. I there are times when it's a little enticing where you and you can kind of go down a, kind of a rat hole and I just don't do it. I just say, look, I, you know, I owe it to and I, you know, this is interesting. I think I always think about the people I'm engaged with and I feel an obligation to a team, to um, an initiative. And I feel that obligation to others. And therefore, I have to bring my my best and full self to everything I do, because I'm going to let other people down.
0: Did that develop from the team sports background with gymnastics? Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: it, it, you mentioned about just remaining so focused and I feel like I, I need to be the same way I need to create that structure that just completely eliminates any of those additional decisions that could put me down one of those rabbit holes. But you mentioned you read the same things every single morning. And it seems like you, you've developed a skill in terms of how quickly you can, you can go through these things. What does that reading look, look list look like?
2: It is a couple of industry, uh, so it's all digital. <laughs> I I I know when I'm on vacation, I actually hold a physical paper, and that to me is indulgence. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, I scan a lot of different industry, um, uh, you know, daily newsletters. I look at the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. I do my scan. I... Um, I look at the National Association of Corporate Directors because it's always touching on. I'm on several boards, so it's really important for me to see, is there anything that I need to be aware of? Is something happening with a competitive company? So uh, I look at PitchBook, the information. uh, I have my, there's probably seven or eight digital newsletters I scan every morning.
0: No, it's, it's always intriguing to me to hear about what different people are sourcing, what they're looking at, what they're reading. So it's really cool to hear. It seems like you've been incredibly focused from a young age, but I am wondering, were there things that you just spent time on early in your career, just that hindsight, looking back, you would have eliminated sooner?
2: Things I spent time on. I'm wondering if I kind of know that might be, uh, I don't know if that's... I. In my whole career, I, I I always just dug in and volunteer. I always tell this to young people now: just um, volunteer to to do something or take on an extra project that isn't obvious that you should be doing it, and bring value to the table of your team or your company. Um, and I just think I I look back at my my spectrum of my career and. I always just kind of jumped in with two feet. And if I felt like I was no longer purposeful and impactful, that's when I made transitions. When I felt like, okay, I've given all of me to this. My continued involvement is not going to move the meter very far in an organization. Maybe it's fully developed. It's recruited a different board. So it's time to make a transition. And I think I have benefited my career because I've been willing to let go of things where it, the, it, the time was right. It's kind of like leave the party while you're still having fun. Um, I've left many parties in the fun part and didn't wait until they wore on me or I had a negative you know, perspective about them.
0: Such incredible advice right there. You mentioned the spectrum of your career. And this is one of the things I'm just most fascinated by. And it is just spread across so many different industries, um, so many different things. But, but one of the jumping off points is around what you studied at Duke. And you'd study psychology, right? I'm just yeah. intrigued how this is translated. Has this helped out at all throughout your business career? Oh,
2: I think everyone should study psychology. I really do. I think understanding, I was fascinated about the human mind. And I was fascinated about people and their behaviors and motivations and upbringing and what was biological and what was influenced by circumstance. And uh, I've always been incredibly curious in that. I also, I love science. I was, uh, I, so I got a, a degree in psychology, but a bachelor of science. So I took a lot of, I took organic chemistry and biology and physics and I love the whole scientific process. So the marrying the, of the two, I was in, it was like a pig in mud. I was in my <laughs> complete indulgent place.
0: I'm thinking about studying psychology. And of course, now you're a very well-known investor. You work with a lot of entrepreneurs. What do you pay attention to that a lot of people wouldn't think about when you're looking at a potential investment? And we can even just call it just the executive team, one of those entrepreneurs.
2: Yeah. And I talk about this a lot. So I, with founders, I spend a lot of time asking questions, trying to understand the motivation and and style with founders. I actually was sharing a situation the other day where in my past, I had made an investment and had I stayed with my gut, I wouldn't have done it because there was a situation in the structuring and closing where the founder kind of snapped at me. It was like just a little, there was a, you know, a, a little too sharp in our dialogue. And I love great debate, but this was not debating. This was something that was really actually very mean spirited. And I went ahead with the investment and it was a mistake. Um, and I, because there were huge issues with the founders. So I'm just trying to stay really in tune to What's motivating someone? Why are they in this? How do they work and interact with other people? And the, I, I think the thing I've learned about great founders is they have to have this really special balance of self-belief and um, this is, you know, I, I can really do this and, and, and still take input appropriately. But you can't take too much external input or you'll lose your focus, you'll lose Um, what you see is really special. So really trying to understand that. And I look a lot at team dynamics. If there are co-founders, I really want to understand their relationship with one another. Uh, Is there respect? Because in many cases, one is the CEO and the other is not. Uh, And how will that play out over time? So I spend... 80% of the time, evaluating opportunity based on the people dynamics.
0: It's so interesting. You bring up so many different things, right? Like that constant battle between having enough self-belief, but then having that that open mind to take in new advice. And then like a subcategory of that open mind, like strong opinions weekly held, is what you got back to earlier. And is that that filtering process. Is there anything that you found Uh, continued successful entrepreneurs able to do in terms of filtering in I heard something recently and they were saying a lot of times we take too much summary advice meaning like giving you the the broad opinion on the company but very few people actually should be giving you summary advice it should be more specific so I'm wondering if there's anything you've uncovered to help people filter better and take in the right advice
2: Uh, yeah that's a um, that one I'd probably have to think about more in terms of how you framed it, I, yeah, I just, that, well, first of all, I wouldn't take summary advice because yeah. that's, that, that those are, to me are the cheap seats. You know, it's really easy to give uh, Teddy Roosevelt. If you've read uh, the, you know, the man in the arena, citizen in a Republic, but the man in the arena. And uh, he talks about being at the Sorbonne and all the posh people and they're all, you know, the cynic on the sideline summary advice is the cynic on the sideline and uh, I would, that's the peanut gallery. That's what I would ignore. If someone has something really specific and tangible that is advice and critique, something maybe I didn't think about or an entrepreneur didn't think about, and it it inspires you to, to question some things, that's valuable advice. Anything that's opening up perspective is valuable advice or, you know, uh, putting light on a blind spot, but top level summary advice Cynic
0: on the sideline. Yes. seats. No, so much for having to think about that. <laughs> you, you, you thought that through pretty quickly, so I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> uh, I am wondering, though. I mean, just as you've advanced throughout your career, how much has pattern recognition played into this? I'm wondering if early in your career you were kind of just making decisions, and if you just think you've gotten way better at spotting things as you've gone on, or, or maybe not at all.
2: I, I think the some people, I guess, would call it pattern recognition. I would say it's just really understanding what separates the wheat from the chaff in a sense, uh, what makes a great leader innovator entrepreneur um in any arena I' I'm, whether I'm volunteering for a nonprofit or there it's really understanding either, kind of where the magic is in someone uh, and I think I over time with experience and seeing, you know, all, all flavors and all sizes, uh, you really start to, you almost have an intuitive instinct about the magic in someone.
0: Where the magic is. I absolutely love that. If, if you were looking back, could, could someone have seen where you were at call it when you were just finishing up school around 23, 24, 25 and fast forwarded and saying, you know what? I think you're going to accomplish what you've accomplished thus far.
2: It So I, um, I I thought I was on a path to medical school when I went to college. This is interesting. And I remember when I went back to my first high school reunion, I think it was my 10th high school reunion, everyone asked me what I was I just finishing up my specialty in something. And I said, I, I didn't take that path. I, I finished pre-med. I took a year. I thought I was taking a year off from school after college, and that was when I got my first job. And then I was just on a path. But I think... Anyone I went to school with, the high school or college, um, would have said that there are no surprises in terms of where, how my life has unfolded. Hmm. I, um, they, uh, when I, so I think you know I ran for mayor of San Francisco. So when I was running for office, the um, press got in touch with a lot of people I had uh, gone to school with. And they got in touch with a very good friend from high school who I did gymnastics with. And she said, let me describe Joanna in high school. We'd all go to school during the day. Joanna, we'd have gymnastics practice after school. Joanna would go home, make her, uh, her family dinner, finish her homework, come back to another practice and probably sew a quilt before breakfast the next morning. Uh, that was how she answered it. And that was kind of who I, I always have been.
0: No, no, no. It makes perfect sense then how things have played out. You mentioned the family. I would love to hear about the family business. and I know after you finished up at columbia you, you went back and the family was operating a hotel right in North Jersey at the time, and you went yes. back to run that
2: yeah, i uh, so when I started business school, I started business school with a five month old baby uh, and did business school in a year and four months. So I was on a, a sprint and coming out of it, my family had moved to Europe, and my father asked if I would take over this business and I thought, well, it would probably be good because it's a location. I'm not going to have to travel in the way I was traveling, and this would be good as a, a young mom. And uh, I thought this is—it's a marketing challenge. The business uh, I couldn't move it, and so I had to figure out where was the market. Uh, and I did some really unique and innovative things with how I got its staff through a Swiss hotel school and. Uh, So I could I essentially hired a bunch of multilingual interns who were really, really trained in the art of service. And uh, because locally, uh, you know, McDonald's paid more per hour than I could even you know pay the um the staff there but it was a it was a great turnaround i went out to european uh based uh, a lot of pharmaceutical if you know north jersey there's hoffman laroche and sharing cloud a lot of big pharma companies who had a lot of their employees coming in from europe and i could say here i have a staff that speaks your language and uh, we're really providing this really special end to end experience and, and turned the business around and, and sold it. And that was actually a foundation for my mother to have. Um, you know, an opportunity to live the rest of her life without worrying about where the money was coming from.
0: Uh, I've got tremendous admiration to to begin there. I I have a five month old at home right now. So so I can only imagine what it was like getting your MBA at that time with a five month old, but, but I'm so intrigued by this, right? Like you come into this, this family scenario, which I, I don't know the family dynamics, how difficult, how easy, what that was like, but then all of a sudden, I mean, coming up with these creative strategies, were you always a creative thinker, even specifically around marketing prior to this? Or were you just kind of thrown to the wolves and you adapted really? No, quickly?
2: I, I think I was always, people say, are you creative? And I'd say, I, I'm a creative problem solver. I mean, you know, I'm an innovator. I, um, I, you know, I just find new ways to do things. Even in my consumer products career, working for um, Danone, the French consumer products company, we were launching a, a new yogurt beverage. And I... Um, I knew it was the the target customer was was young. And, you know, uh, so I ended up sponsoring the largest frisbee and hacky, hacky sack festival in the U.S. in Washington, D.C., and ended up, we threw the most frisbees in the air at the same time on the mall in D.C. and got into the Guinness Book of World Records and People Magazine covered it. And it didn't cost me much to sponsor it. Uh, but these were, in, you know, I always came up with kind of an out of the box and thank God I had an amazing CEO at that company who would listen to my, what I thought were very compelling pitches and he'd say, okay, let's do it. And he'd allow me to go do something. And it, you know, it, those things ended up being game changers, but they were not obvious,
0: non-consensus and right usually plays that well. It, it was so funny, Joanna. So on, on the top of my, my notes for you, I just have innovator just underlined because of the number of different fields you did. So this is so cool for me kind of hearing about some of the more pull back the curtain behind the scenes type things. Th- this could go no, there, nowhere. I am wondering though, what is that idea process like for you? Do you do you have a filtering mechanism, a way you run through your ideas just pre- before you even present them to the team? Yeah,
2: so first of all, I always, uh, and this is why I think it was very natural for me to move into the field of brand and marketing because my natural instinct, and maybe it was because I was a science major. So I was always kind of testing hypotheses. So I always go to the market, whatever that market may be. So it could be within a company, I'm trying to get something done. So I'm going to go talk to all the people. It could be, you know, if it was a product or a service out in the world, I would talk to, customers or prospective customers. so I always go to the market and get insight. I, I, I want to understand the landscape. and again, it could be a team landscape or it could be a big external market landscape. And I think doing having that process of really understanding, not sharing my point of view, asking really good questions, trying to uncover where you know almost like even the nuance in something is, uh, has really helped me then put together, and uh, a you know an effective pitch or plan or proposal, uh, and, and end up getting that either implemented or funded or um, in place.
0: One of the things you bring up there is around nuance, and the way I view it, usually when there's nuance, things are confusing. That's where there's that eligible margin, where people aren't finding that thing, and when you can really dive deep on that, um, it's really intriguing. You can find some interesting opportunities. Another thing that that you were bringing up there, kind of having that that scientist-type background, uh, Adam Grant out of uh, the Wharton School, he just came out with a new book, Think Again, and, and he kind of studies everyone, entrepreneurs everywhere, and it was basically the scientists were the ones that were most successful, kind of testing ideas, getting market feedback, Kind of. So that's the mindset you want. So it's really cool kind of hearing about that. I, I would love to know that. I just
2: talked to Adam a couple of weeks ago and he told me about the book, but I haven't read it yet. So now I have to read it.
0: Yeah. He, he basically lays it out in three different types and it's like preachers. Um, I forget the other three. And then the scientist and the scientist hands down. Um, he's got some interesting studies out of the UK, even um, the success yeah. of the entrepreneurs. But yeah, don't, don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole there. Uh, Cause I could talk about Adam all day, but, but I'm wondering how does the transition then happen? Um, to venture and investing? I mean, I I know you you were in the successful hotel, then you even got into a restaurant. How does that transition take place?
2: Yeah, so I, so when I was in business school, I had, uh, I took a venture capital class, it was the first time I had ever heard the concept venture capital. And I was fascinated, I thought, wow, well, that's me. I'm always the entrepreneur in the company. I'm always the one who they put on a new project or a new initiative to get something done. And I just love that kind of, um, and I felt, and my dad was an entrepreneur. So I, I think before anyone knew what that word meant. So the idea of having an idea and executing behind it. So it just felt, I remember just being riveted in that class. I, and, and, um, and so when I moved out to California, I went and talked to everyone on Santol road thinking they'll hire me because I'm this great marketer and, and uh, first of all, I think I was the wrong gender, especially at that time. This was early 90s. Uh, and they all told me to get transaction experience. So I actually went into investment banking. I worked at BA Securities and then for a boutique merchant bank. And it was there that I we would get companies funded. We'd help companies raise capital. And I, they would go out of business. And I, when I went and started to look at how all of these really – what I thought were going to be successful tech companies failed, they actually built the technology, created the technology they said they would. And when I looked, I was like, wow, that was a great team and a great group of investors. And it went out of business. And it's because there wasn't, now we use the expression product market fit. But my perspective was they didn't understand the market and their customers. They were doing technical innovation, looking for a market. And I said, what if you could do market and look for innovation to meet market needs? So just kind of flipping the paradigm. And I decided uh, I was going to go off and and go do this. And I started a firm, very similar to the firm I'm running now, where I did um, consulting, essentially work for startups. Uh, So I knew that if I was going to go out and raise a fund, I needed referenceable CEOs. Someone would say, did you really make a difference in how you thought about building your company? And I did private placements. I helped entrepreneurs raise capital, which is a marketing process. And rather than taking cash fees on the capital raise, I took equity. And it was a way that I started to, with no capital, build a portfolio. And that was the foundation that I went out and raised my first venture fund. Um, I met with 400 investors over three years. So I Always took no as not yet. Otherwise, I would have been really depressed or probably quit pretty early. Um, and you know, over time, we're able to you know listen to what they told me and come back and and make. You know, and and achieve that and ultimately i got funded
0: yeah you bring up a really really good point there it, it's not about just taking the no and being able to withstand that but it's about actually hearing some of the real feedback cutting out like you mentioned earlier uh that signal from the noise i am intrigued why did you decide to take equity uh as opposed to upfront capital
2: well i took equity in so and um, in if i was helping an this is before the fund was in place so if i was helping an entrepreneur essentially doing a private place and helping them raise money. I didn't take cash fees. I took equity because I wanted to be able to demonstrate to prospective investors that I had a portfolio of interesting equity holdings. And the other thing I did that was really different, I went to other venture capitalists and asked them to fund me. And that's like Coke going to Pepsi. Uh, But I said, I bring this brand and marketing expertise. You have deep technical expertise and I give huge credit. And I I think I I shared this with him when I had run into him a couple of years ago, but Bob Cagle from Benchmark Capital uh, got in touch with me and said, "Um, I'd love to meet you. Could you have breakfast at Bucks? I had no idea where Bucks was. Now it was like the place down in Woodside. So I go in to meet this guy. I have no idea. I knew he was at a firm called Benchmark Capital. And he's like the mayor. Everyone's like, hey, Bob, Bob. And we sit down and we have a great conversation. And he said, I'm really intrigued by what you're doing. I really like your energy. And uh, I said, what advice would you have for me? And he said, always ask for the order. And so Bob said, "Always, you know, make sure you always leave a meeting and close. And I said, well, would you invest with me? And he said, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And he called me. I I got in touch. I gave him a couple of weeks to think about it. And he said, I called him and he said, yes, I'll invest And that. I asked, I think one of the most important questions, which was, can I use your name? And he said, yes. So imagine how my fundraising trajectory changed. I was able to call other people and say, hi, you know, this is my pitch. And and Bob Cagle from Benchmark Capital is investing. And that was a little tipping point to you know help me have validation and credibility. And then it gave others comfort uh, to support what my initiative was.
0: Was that always in the back of your mind? If you got Bob to invest, without a doubt, a lot of that was going to be brand recognition there and being able to use his name?
2: No, I, I don't think it was necessarily him per se. But I knew that the reason I went to other venture funds was I knew that if I could get individual venture capitalists to support what I was doing. It would be validation that what I was doing was adding value to the venture capital ecosystem, because I would always say the world doesn't need another venture capital fund, but what we need are new perspectives. And and I thought, I really believed in myself that I was bringing something special And I knew that the only way I would ultimately get institutional investors to pay attention to that is if I had proof points and other getting well-known venture capitalists to to invest was a great proof point.
0: You just mentioned once again about having the belief in yourself. We were talking earlier about self-belief. I'm assuming you've experienced, in addition to these 400 plus no's, a lot of very difficult times. Uh, I'm wondering, is there one most difficult stretch throughout your career that just left the lasting impression on you?
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know, maybe I had actually one of my advisors asked me, did I have a, a challenging upbringing? Cause he said, where do you get your like tenacity and dig in, you know, are you overcoming something? And I had a great upbringing, I had a wonderful family and an inspirational father. And I, uh, so I don't know where that came from, but I, It was, I would say, being in the venture industry as a female managing partner, trying to do something new was not easy. In fact, sometimes when I would come home and complain, uh, the response I got was, you chose that. Mm -hmm. You could have gone into a field that was way more accepting of women uh, and because it was you know, it was lonely at times. I literally on the bio break at a board meeting would walk into the ladies' room and this might sound like too much information, but I'd look myself in the mirror and say, Joanna, you deserve to be here. Like I almost had to pump myself back up to say, cause no one's talking to me on the sideline. I uh, know people are talking over me in the meeting. So I learned how to hold my point and smile. And make sure that I just kept talking and I wouldn't let people talk over me. But I felt like every day I kind of had to put on a little bit of armor and, and, you know, kind of go into it.
0: I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now and, and they're hoping they can put that armor on each day. Does that armor get easier to put on? And is it more almost like your natural skin as you advance throughout your career?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. And yes, it is more your natural skin. So... Uh, I really felt like I didn't have to show up as something I, well, first of all, I never did that. I, I feel like I always showed up as me and I think that's really what worked. I didn't feel like I had to wear a certain kind of outfit or, uh, you know, not wear the earrings I wanted to wear, you know, whatever it may be. I, I felt like I really, I, I showed up as me. So I think that gave me, I felt connected to myself, which was a way of, I think, having an armor because I, I stayed connected to myself. Um, and yeah, things get easier over time because you realize that you're there for a reason and you're adding value. And I, that would just be the reminder. I, I know when I was raising a a new fund at one point and when uh, prospective investors did due dil- diligence, they said the primary feedback we heard from your CEOs was that you're their first call, which to me was like the most positive feedback I could get because it meant I was accessible, that I listened and they felt confident in reaching out to me. And I can tell you in the executive session at the end of a board meeting where we asked the leadership team or the CEO to leave and we're talking as a board, very often I, was, I would surface an issue that no one knew about. And they'd say, well, how did you know that? And I'd say, well, I talked to him. I, you know, I some, there was a situation where uh, a CEO's wife was going through cancer treatments and he never brought that up with the board. But in the executive session, I said, you know, I just want to make sure that we're all feeling you know, compassionate right now because of what he's going through with his family. So let's, when we share feedback back, let's do so in a way that is supportive. And people said, how did you, you, know, how'd you know that? And I said, because I listen. I ask him questions. How's it going? How's your family? Makes a difference.
0: Absolutely, Joanna. I mean, that's just incredible, right? When when you have an entrepreneur saying that my first call is going to you. That just speaks absolute volumes to the person you are for them. Uh, I'm wondering because at so many times, especially during these calls, entrepreneurs are so busy. And so I'm assuming most investors, like you were talking about, they just want to get into the nitty gritty of the business. H- how do you find that balance between finding out about things that are happening outside the office, family life, and then all that uh, combined with with what's going on in the business? I-, I guess I'm just wondering what one of these phone calls looks like.
2: Uh, well, first of all, in, everything I do. And even in the work we do at West, we always say this, but there's a human at the center of everything and we need to, to connect with the human first. Uh, and if we don't, uh, I think we lose, we almost lose everything. So I, I try to connect as a human first, which is how are you? How's it going? Even I, I think when I first talked to you, uh, it just, you know, talking about your background rather than talking about what we're going to talk about, trying to find connections and a way of saying um, we share something, even, you know, we share being human. Uh, and so, it, again, super basic, but but very, very, um, imp- imp- I think, very important. I think it's critical.
0: Yeah. I mean, we were talking about the basics earlier, and you said super simple. But, but I can tell you right off the bat, I mean – 225 plus of these the the people who do what you did and start off on mutual ground and find that connection first I, I always feel like it just it, it whether it be a better interview or not. I feel way more connected um, So no, I really appreciate that. I mean Joanna You have so many amazing takeaways lessons already. I, I'm wondering out of mentors like you've mentioned a few who has less than, left the most lasting impact on you
2: Oh, wow um, well, I think it started with my father who really enabled me to believe that I could be anything. I mean, parents say that to their kids, but my dad was the one who said, you're just, but you're going to have to work at it. Uh, you can be anything you want to be, but you're, you're really going to have to work at it. And you're going to have to be willing to take critique and critical advice. Uh and, and, we talked about sports earlier in sports with a coach, the coach doesn't say that was great, or you're doing really well, but they, they tell you what you're doing wrong and what you need to do better. And it's, it's almost like tough love feedback. Uh, And I think I've sought that throughout my life starting. So it started with my family It moved on to when I was coached, you know, as a competitive athlete and, um, And then the people, I think Ann Richards was probably, I was so fortunate uh, through my Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute to have her as my assigned mentor. Um, And Ann was the first elected female governor of Texas. She's the one who said uh, George Bush Bush was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Um, Anyway, she was very funny. Uh, But she said, um, she really instilled a lot in me and taught me so much about the dynamics of power Uh, and when someone has power, how others try to take power, she was not nurturing. I, there was a time I was going through an interesting struggle and she, I called her and she said, buck up, stop complaining, get tough. You need to understand that the reason this is happening is based on where you sit Mm -hmm. and others will try to take that from you. So just know that's happening and deal with it. Uh, and Her words, and she always used to say to me, just do it. You know, if you sit on a playground and watch a bunch of moms with their kids climbing on things, most of the moms are telling them to be careful, to stop. They're putting dampers on their exploration and their drive. And she said, I'd want to sit on the playground and say, try to get to the top of that jungle gym. You know, go for it. Just do it. She said, if we instilled that into kids more... Think about what they could achieve and take on. And those words just always resonated with me.
0: That reminds me of a story. So Jeff Bezos recently announced he, he's going to be stepping down from Amazon. I'm pretty sure it was from his mom. Uh, there was a quote, because I think it was his, uh, his grandfather lost his thumb uh, in an accident. And his mom says, I'd rather have a son without a thumb than one who's unwilling to try. I, I probably butchered that quote, but you can kind of see you've got to get out there. You've got to try. You've got to explore. That curiosity uh, is so important. I can't not bring up what you brought, up, what Anne was saying about around the dynamics of power. Anything else in that that she taught you? That's just really interesting.
2: Yeah, I, I, well, dynamics of, I, yeah. So in the dynamics of power, I, I think I knew in some way that that power really is what it's all about. It, you know, almost the world is about. You know one power taking power from another, one person trying to take power from another, and the quest for power uh, I was a probably a little bit Pollyanna about it uh, until Anne kind of you know splashed the cold water on my face and said, "Buck up," and you know understand this and and it just helped frame things it really when It gave me a way of looking at a situation and understanding there was probably a power struggle in that. So I it allowed me to almost like emotionally separate myself from the issue and look at it, you know, more as a dynamic and and make better choices or figure out a better path.
0: I'd love to hear even more about taking the emotion out of things. Uh, I was just talking with Howard Marks from Oak Tree Capital, um, one of of the legendary value investors, and he was saying, Sean, I don't know. I just have a predisposition. I was born with being able to take the emotion out and makes investing way easier. Uh, I I would love to just hear your thoughts around emotion, specifically around investments and and the impact and dynamic there.
2: Yeah. So, well, first of all, with emotion, I I come from an Italian family and we're all about emotion. (laughs) And uh, so- I, but I think I've had this ability to separate what my personal emotion, my, my, you know, love of other people, my, uh, from a a kind of almost a professional uh, situation, I really have the ability to compartmentalize the two. And I don't bring emotion into something. And if I'm feeling really like, overwhelming emotion. I have this 48 hour rule, which I've had my whole life. If you talk to any one of our four kids, they'll tell you about the 48 hour rule. But if something is really emotionally weighing on me, I, I give myself 48 hours to let it simmer and, and figure it out and let that emotion dissipate. I don't try to just put it in a container because it's going to come out in some other way. So I sometimes I just allow myself to have that perspective so that I can rationally look at something that isn't clouded by emotion but otherwise in a professional setting i mean there's just rules of the game and you know sometimes you know when if money gets lost or something happened it's you know i I say we're all you know big boys and big girls in this and that's you know you just kind of kind of take it as it goes and focus on the next thing Back to, you know, kind of the idea of not staying wallet in the past, but moving on to the next thing.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I love the 40 hour rule. I try to implement something similar, just slightly different hours there. Uh, I'm wondering, is there anything that you've done over time that you've been able to zoom out of the business and then also zoom back in, right? Like you have to understand the granular details, but you also have to have that 30,000 foot view and understand the bigger picture. How have you managed that throughout your life?
2: Mm. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm not exactly sure how, I I just think it's, it's like just what I do. Uh, I can get deep in the weeds on something. uh, But I have this, I think it's back to what we started to talk about in the beginning about this kind of efficiency model. Uh, When I'm finding I'm too deep into the weeds, it's, uh uh-oh, I'm going to, I'm losing perspective here. We need to pull back up and look at something holistically. So I, I don't know. I just, I think I've always had the ability to like to work at different altitudes pretty seamlessly.
0: Hmm. I know we've discussed a few of your strengths. What do you think your comparative advantage is?
2: In what way? Unpack that a little bit.
0: So say, say someone was looking to, to team up, um, bring on outside capital what are you going to bring that others don't? I know we've talked a few things about like your innovative thinking. Uh, I just, I'm always intrigued to hear about people who've sustained success for long periods of time and, and what they've uncovered about themselves, which might not always be so apparent to outsiders, but internally they know they really bring value there.
2: Yeah and um, so several things one the what we talked about value in the people and understanding you know back to psychology roots and understanding human dynamics and and really being in tune to that i think i uh, uh, i've had a i had a situation i'm not going to name the names but where i had i was in a a collaborative initiative and one of the people in the initiative i had just right out of the gate uh a really an unsettled feeling about and thought that their motivation and their interest of why they were doing it were not you know from the same aligned values. It was more about how they would be perceived externally versus really being focused you know uh, committed to the work. And I voiced that early. and it ultimately two years and a lot of pain later, there was someone else on the team who said, wow, I really wish that we had listened to you. We suffered a lot uh, in, in that process because they were blinded by something. So, and this is why even in, I, I love, love, love the team I work with today because I view that team, I always say as a mosaic where no two tiles are the same because of the the breadth of perspectives and backgrounds and expertise and upbringing and gender and orientation, everything allows me to see perspectives and things that I wouldn't see on my own. I don't get get blinded by my own pattern recognition. I don't get blinded by my own process. I'm constantly challenging myself to be open to external input from the people that I really value.
0: I love the mosaic analogy there. Uh, I'm wondering, even going a little bit further on that, what are you looking for when bringing someone onto the team? I know you just mentioned a few different things, different backgrounds. Obviously, these different backgrounds help strengthen the different perspectives. But are there other things that are almost non-negotiables for you in terms of someone joining the team?
2: Yeah. So um, to work, our, it's hard to work on our team because we are always – we're not sector-focused. We're always taking on and going deep and learning about – new sectors, new initiatives, new opportunities. So um, everyone on the team has to have a very high level of intellectual curiosity uh, and combined with the um, a, a real value in excellent execution uh, because great ideas are wonderful, but it, I always say execution is everything. If you can't execute behind them, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so it really is a unique combination uh, um, in order for you know for people on the team to be very intellectually curious, but also really understand the the value, the rigor, and the discipline of excellent execution, uh, and it's that unique combination, um, and they really have to value and believe in what we do. We we're brand and market experts with investor discipline. And that means that every person on the team and all the work that we do has to understand, will this make a difference in market? Will this enable a company to achieve its goals? And so we have creatives who are designers and, uh, and they have to understand where's the company in its capitalization and, you know, are they at their series a and what are their goals in their series B and, and that takes a very unique person because some people say, look, I just want to do my job and be creative, but at West, you have to be creative and understand how it's driving market value.
0: Yeah, you bring up execution. You, you got to love being at those dinner parties where the person comes. I, I have a million ideas. Yeah, but how many of those have you actually executed on? There, there's always exactly. someone with, it, with another idea. Um, that, that's really intriguing uh, about almost how unique someone has to be just to be on the team at West. Is there anything you do to, to vet that out in someone? That, that might be just kind of unique or, or out of the ordinary
2: yeah, so it 's so interesting. I was talking with one of the the men on our team who joined i guess he 's joined about a year and a half ago, and when we sat down to interview i, I he had all he went to Stanford, he worked at s a p had all the great skills. we talked nothing about West, and we talked about uh, uh, some social issues and uh, you know, long-term racism. And we, we had this whole conversation and it kind of went into lots of different dimensions and we, it was fluid. Like we were able to, and here I'm, I was probably, I mean, 30 some years older than him. And we had this incredibly fluid in conversation and I thought he's perfect. He uh, And we we never talked about Wes. We didn't talk about what Wes did. I figured he'll do that with the rest of the team, but I really wanted to understand how he thinks and where his mind goes and how quickly he can respond to things. And it wasn't a test. It was just a conversation. But I thought, I want to show up with this person every day.
0: I, I love that. It's such an interesting perspective. I wonder, what do you do after a conversation like that? Almost to to vet out and assess your thinking? Hmm.
2: I, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, in that situation, it was just a really great fluid dialogue. And I thought, I think I walked out of it and said, we have to hire him. Uh, that was it. I mean, it was pretty obvious and, you know, you probably had those situations. Sometimes I was interviewing someone for one of our, uh, client companies yesterday and i literally i kept looking at my watch thinking how are we going to get through how much time did we <laughs> schedule because it just wasn't there wasn't a dynamic you know um quality to the conversation yeah.
0: Nothing like having eight minutes into that hour-long conversation and just dreading those other 52 minutes. Uh, yeah. I, I know you guys are doing some really interesting things, unique at West, uh, which is just on par for, for everything that you've done throughout your career. What are some other things that West is looking at and, and you guys are thinking through currently?
2: Um, so first of all, it, the whole concept that when people hear brand or marketing you know, the, uh, even client companies will say, or portfolio companies, uh, we want to redo our brand. I always ask, like, what is brand to you, uh, and you get a thousand different answers. And so, at West, we uh, we always say that the brand is the sum total of every interaction your customer has with your company. And I would say our work is at way more important today than it ever was because. We're living in a world where everything about how you might have sold or marketed or hosted a gathering or, uh, in order to, eat, to get more customers has changed because of COVID. Uh, and so how, how does your brand show up in the world? And one thing we've been talking a lot about lately is the employer brand. So when you think about the employer brand of Google, all you had to do was bring someone onto campus And they would say, wow, this place is really cool. They have massage rooms and people are playing volleyball and look at all the food. Well, guess what? Now you work at Google out of your bedroom. Uh, So and because of that, now we're in a global war for talent because it doesn't matter where people are located anymore. So there was a a company we're involved with that really, I think the ethos of the company had been everyone has to be within our, our building. And now they're building a tech team in Argentina. So all of a sudden, the company in Argentina that thinks they're doing something innovative is saying, uh-oh, how do I hold on to my employees? So really thinking about that employer brand. How, what, what is that way that you connect with your employees, um, and how do you create defensibility in that?
0: How are you You're seeing – how are different companies thinking that through what does that look like i mean you mentioned google that's that's entirely changed now um, with everyone virtual
2: yeah so the way we look at it we we do these uh it's it's doing a customer and an employee journey map uh so looking at you know on the customer side it's i i first hear about sean somewhere and now um what are all my ways of interacting? looking at that entire spectrum. So if it's a, you know, a product company, I hear about it, I go to their website, I try to go through the conversion process, whatever it may be, looking at every single interaction because a brand is a series of like, it's debits and credits and you want to keep adding credits to the brand value and you could, there's no amount of advertising you could spend to make up for, for a bad customer service call. So it, it could even be that one little thing. So it's really dissecting that. And the same thing on the employer side. What is what is the employee journey here? What, what do they value? How do we, what are our values? Are they well-defined? How does that ethos show up in a virtual world? And really doing the hard work to figure that out is I think what's going to enable uh, brands or companies to really, um, you know, uh, defend and, and to build on what they have, uh, versus their competition.
0: Joanna, this is absolutely awesome. I feel like this is a masterclass. My entire page right now uh, is filled with notes. So, so I'm just loving this. Uh, I am wondering though, when, when you're working with it, with a team, what are they not asking you enough about that just in the back of your head is just circulating around saying, come on guys, like you need to be thinking through this.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, in and i'm going to speak specifically into kind of the more recent last 5 year venture capital ecosystem on how you drive sales and get to value and a lot of it was performance marketing based it was about you know finding a spend and and you know figuring out your roi on that spend and the broader i would say almost foundational aspects of a brand the we always start with the why, like why are we even all doing this? you know what what is that that big purpose that we'll probably never achieve, but we 're all it 's like our North star. then what do we do let 's get really crystal clear about that and and making sure that we articulate that what that differentiates us from all the competition because it's wonderful. You know, we often find teams think what they're doing is so unique. And then we do, sometimes we even do this thing, we call it a pub quiz, where we take the the um, the description lines from, you know, competitors that they know of, and then others who are just doing, and we don't list the name of the company. And we have the team say, who do you think this is? Sometimes companies don't get their own lines, you know, correct. Um, But what they realize is there's a tremendous amount. We started this conversation talking about noise. There's a tremendous amount of noise in the market. So let's get really crystal clear about what we do to the point where anyone on this team can articulate that. And then it's, how do we do it? That's like the brand character. And it's almost, you know, sometimes those show up in other ways around company values. But what is the character of our brand? And how do we show up in the world? And being really clear about that, this foundational piece. So Whether we're writing a a sales collateral piece or we're talking on a podcast or that ethos is coming through because as I talked about credits and debits, it's adding little credits to the brand value. So having a real clear why, what, how, and then for who, who, like getting really crystal clear, and this also depends on stage of company, about who is your audience and I love when entrepreneurs will say, it's going to be a revolution. It's everyone. I'm like, no, we got to start somewhere. And let's get really crystal clear about who this is going to really resonate with and how we build on that to continue to grow a successful company.
0: Absolute masterclass once again, right there. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of entrepreneurs who would who would love the opportunity to work with you at West. Uh, we'll link them up here in a minute. Final one though, uh, if you could sit down for a conversation like this over an evening with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member, who would you love having a long form conversation with?
2: This is going to maybe sound. I was thinking about this recently, and it was a book that inspired me when I was a kid, but Harriet Tubman which I don't think would be obvious to most people, but she had such courage and she was so anchored to purpose and she put her life at risk on behalf of so many other people that I just would, I'd really want to unpack that and understand that if you really think about what she accomplished, uh, it, it was extraordinary.
0: Yeah, an absolutely remarkable woman. I would love hearing that conversation, by the way. But Joanne, I, I know we need to wrap up here. Um, anything else you want to leave the listeners with uh, about yourself or West, and where they can stay connected with you?
2: Yeah. So, um, first of all, anyone can uh, email me directly at Joanna at west.ventures. Not a .dot com at the end of it, just .dot Ventures. Uh, and uh, you know, at West, we're we're really um, we really enjoy even just sometimes having introductory conversations we will be really uh, our, our values. uh, We, they actually, the acronym of our core values as a firm are turbo uh, but the first word is truth tellers. So we'll give really honest feedback and we um, will say to a potential client, it's not the right time. Uh, to work with us or go do this. And then let's have a conversation later. So we're really in an efficient way, good at giving, um, I think some really valuable initial advice, whether we engage or not. And then also, you know, just even uh, depending on what their needs are, helping them find who else could be um, supportive of them in the whole kind of startup ecosystem.
0: Cutting right to the truth. I love it. Joanna, this is so much fun. This is a a really big help for me and and I'm sure a lot of the listeners. So I cannot thank you enough for joining us on what got you there.
2: And thank you for doing what you do. It's awesome.
0: You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.